Our text tonight is going to be Ecclesiastes 12:13. So in high school, I had I was fortunate to have some some good teachers. I went to a public school, but it was a small town, and and we did have some good teachers. And my favorite teacher probably was Mr. Vogel. He was the biology teacher. Um, he played ping pong, and I went over to his house a couple times a month and played ping pong with him. So I had a relationship outside of school with him. Got to know him. He got to know me. Um, and he was just a good guy. He a little bit shorter, a little bit overweight. He he's he really is my um, image of a mad scientist. When I when I uh, think of that, he he even had the laugh down. He intentionally kind of did that. Had that mad scientist sort of look. And uh, um, but you know I was kind of a lazy student in high school, and, and Mr. Vogel kind of wa- wanted to encourage me. To, to be better, a better student, and to work harder. Um, and I don't know where he's picked these up. I, I have vague memories that maybe he did martial arts at one point, but I, I don't remember. I'm not sure. But, but at, very, at some point, he learned pressure points in the, in the body. And there's various pressure points, like one right behind your elbow, where if you, you squeeze that, it really hurts. And so he would come up to me and get me a pressure point. It's like, you're going to study for the quiz tomorrow, aren't you? And I'd be like, yes, Mr. Vogel, yes, I am. And I did study for, the, for the, the test a lot of times, a lot more than I did for any of my other classes, a little bit because of the fear of him teaching me a new pressure point, but also because I respected him as well. So there's was, there was multiple aspects. So I, I, I had this fear of him, and I obeyed him um, because of that. Um, so Ecclesiastes 12:13, just one verse tonight. At the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Now, this does seem like a strange command to us, right? I mean, Jamie, in his prayer, talked about that, you know, we should love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves, right? We think of this as the great commandments, right? The two great commandments that summarizes all of the law. So how in the world do we reconcile this? This is... You know, what Solomon is saying, this is the end, this is it. Fear God, keep his commandments. This is the, our whole duty. This, this seems very strange to us. Shouldn't we love God rather than fear him? As we said, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Isn't this teaching salvation by works? Right? You know, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So how can this be reconciled with the New Testament? I mean, just look at Peter's sermon um, in Acts 2 at Pentecost. When they ask him, they're they're cut to the the heart and they ask, what should we do? And Peter says to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So we might think, well, Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes is a pretty weird book. Maybe it's just one of those weird things in Ecclesiastes. We'll just ignore it like we ignore Song of Solomon. Those are just kind of books we like, don't really understand them. But we can't really do that because we find this in other places as well. Just a couple of them. Psalm 103, verses 17 and 18. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to have children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. Psalm 112, verse 1, Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. And Psalm 128, 1, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. And we could find other verses as well. So, so tonight we're going to investigate how in the world does this make sense? How does this fit with our understanding of salvation? Because salvation is 
by grace through faith. We just don't really do believe that. It's not by, by the works of the law. So in looking at this, we're going to first look at fearing God. Then we're going to look at keeping his commandments. And then we're going to see how this, this all fits in. So first, what is fear? Fearing God. So we have to know what is fear to understand fearing God. So there's really two definitions of fear that we care about. The first one is to be afraid or frightened of to be a dread, to be in terror of, right? This is, you're afraid of the thing in the dark, right? That's the terror, that's that type of fear. The other fear is to have a reverential awe of, this is to revere or to honor, right? And so Freud and others in the 19th century, they believed that religion was created because we were afraid of nature. That, that was the, their idea. They already, in their mind, the fact that there was no God was already proven. There was no need to investigate that anymore. But what was puzzling to them is, why are people so religious? And so this is what one of Freud's theories, he had many, was that we're, we're in dread and terror of natural forces. We can't control them. They frighten us, so we invent gods who we can negotiate with, right? We can offer sacrifices. We can have some sort of negotiation like, was a, like with a person, and then that comforts us, and we feel better. We don't feel quite as, quite as afraid, right? We see this dread and terror of natural forces um, on July 2nd, 1505. Anybody know uh, what that date is? Right, this is Luther was returning from home to Erfurt where he was studying law, and he, he was hit by a thunderstorm, caught in a storm, and almost struck by lightning. And Luther, being impetuous and impulsive, he called out to St. Anne and vowed to become a monk if he survived. Um, he did survive, he did become a monk, but not because of anything that St. Anne did. Right, he was in dread and terror of the thunderstorm, um, and you could kind of see that, that he wanted, he thought that praying to this saint would, would help him, right? And this is kind of the idea that Freud had. Um, but this is not the case. We're going to see that the God of the Bible, uh, we have both types of fear for God. We, we have a reverential fear, we should, but we should also be afraid and frightened because he's a holy God. Um, but first, let's see the reverential uh, fear first. I'm getting ahead of myself, which I frequently do in Sunday school, as Jacob can affirm. I frequently say something, and then I go into my notes, and I say the exact same thing again because I got ahead of myself. So so looking at the, the reverential fear of God, we see this in the Psalms, other places, but Psalms are pretty good for this. Psalm 22, 23, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, so you see this reverential all of God. Psalm 33, 6 through 9, we see, see this as well. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. Right. So we see this reverential all of God in his works of creation, in what he is and what he does. But there are still elements of dread and terror. I think C.S. Lewis has the right idea when uh, there's a conversation between the children and Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, uh, and the children hear that they're going to meet Aslan, and they find out that he's not a man, but he's a lion. And so they ask, you know, they have some concern. They ask Mr. Beaver, uh, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver tells them, of course he isn't safe, but he's good, right? And that kind of gets the idea for God as well. God is powerful. He's holy. He's a consuming fire, but he is good, right? Paul in Philippians 2.12 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 
right? So we see that aspect of fear. There is this fear. We still have this dread and terror, at least in part because we have not yet been perfected and given glorified bodies. We still sin, and though we are forgiven, we know how God feels about sin, and that sin has no place in the presence of God. Our sin disrupts our relationship with God, right? So we still have that dread. It's not a dread that we'll have when we're glorified and with Christ dwelling in the new, the new heavens and the new earth, but it is what we have right now because we're not perfected, we're not completely glorified yet. We're still on that process. We see this when Jesus calls Peter to be his disciple. So in Luke 5, 1 through 11, we see this, right, it says, uh, starting in verse 1, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the, two, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats, so they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken, and so were so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Right, so Peter was an experienced fisherman. He knew when he let down the net as Jesus commanded, and all of a sudden all of the fish in the water was suddenly in the net, and their boats were sinking. He knew this was not natural. And for a brief period of time, he knew he was standing before God. He was standing before holy God, and it terrified him, right? Our natural response would be like, hey, you want to be a business partner? This is really a good thing you got here. Uh, I like to see, if you could do this like once a month, we'll split the profits 50-50, and we'll make a killing. I only have to work one day a month, right? And I'll still make a profit. But that's not how we responded. His response is, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. Because he recognizes for that brief period of time, an instant, He's before holy God. This is not merely a man standing before him. This is God himself. And he knows he's a sinner and it terrifies him. Right? Proper, but we should understand that proper fear of God never causes us to flee from God. We may be trembling, but we still seek God. Unlike the demons in James 2.19, right? James says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Right? This is the, this is the difference between, we see between Peter and Judas. Right? Peter sins and falls, but he doesn't, in fear, run from God. He goes back. Right? Judas flees. Right? In the garden, when Adam and Eve sinned, what did they do? They hid because they were afraid. Right? Sin causes us to fear God, causes us to tremble and be in terror of God because we know that God cannot stand sin in his presence. Right? All the elements of fear of God all the elements of the fear of God are seen in Isaiah 6, 1 through 5. This is what it says. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, 
For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So we see the fear of God leads the seraphim to reverence and worship, calling out, holy, holy, holy. But the fear of God leads Isaiah to a trembling fear and a humble repentance, right? He says, oh, I am undone, because he recognizes that he is sinful and he is standing in the presence of holy God, right? We, see, we also see all the elements of the fear of God in the disciples when Jesus calms the storm, the storm, the storm. He calms the storm. Uh, Luke 8, 22 and 25, this is what it says. One day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep, and a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where's your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? Right, in one sense they were terrified, Mark 4.41, the parallel passage, says they were filled with great fear, right? It says they were afraid of the storm. And remember, these are seasoned fishermen. These guys are not amateurs, and that, this storm scared them. But when Jesus said, peace be still, and all of a sudden everything was peaceful, they were even more afraid. Because once again, they recognized this was not a mere man standing before him. This was holy God, and they are sinners, and they feared greatly. But they also marveled, right? This is... Uh, they were in awe. That's, that's what it says here. They marveled, right? So they were afraid, but they were also in awe of him. Like, who is this that can even command the winds and the sea? Um, it is God. That, that's who. <laughs> that's who can do that. Um, the only proper fear is the fear of God. To fear anything else is to fail to recognize God for who he is. He is the creator. He is sovereign. He is all-powerful. All things happen according to God's will. To fear anything else is an act of idolatry. When we fear, there's a sense in which we are saying that the object of our fear is greater than us in some way. Um, we don't fear things that we think are, we're greater than, right? Imagine somebody using a toy poodle as a guard dog, right? You would just laugh at it. Jamie's laughing now, right? Because what's a toy poodle going to do? <laughs> like, it's going to annoy me with its barking? <laughs> like, that's all it's going to do. We, we're not afraid of a toy poodle, um, because we feel that we're stronger than it. We feel that we're bigger than it. But you put a big dog there that's growling and snarling, and now we're going to be afraid. Because now we're not so sure we can get the victory over that guard dog, right? So we're going to be afraid. Our greatest fear is to be reserved for that which we think is greater than anything else. We should fear only God because nothing can compare to God. Right? The Bible equates the fear of God with worship. Uh, compare Jesus' words in Matthew 4.10 with their source in Deuteronomy 6.13. So Matthew 4.10, this is part of the temptation. Jesus answers, saying, Be gone, saying, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Well, this seems to fit best with Deuteronomy 6.13, which says, It is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. So he's talking about worship in one hand, but in the Deuteronomy passage, it's talking about fear. So it seems to be equating those. Notice how Jesus, right, he substitutes worship for fear. Again, I get ahead of myself. Since the ungodly do not worship God, they can be described as having no fear of God. This is a, a frequent um, description of the ungodly is no fear of God, those that have no fear of God. It's Psalm 36, 1. Um, says, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. 
Right, so summary of fearing God, to fear God properly is to know him, to have a reverent awe of him, and while trembling to seek him. Right, this is the proper fear to have. All right, so let's look at the second part then, keeping his commandments. God promises blessings to those who keep his commandments. Many places we can look throughout this. I'm going to look in Leviticus 26 because we have both blessings and cursings there. So just bear with me as I read a longer passage. I'm cutting it down a little bit. But Leviticus 26, 3 through 12, we see the blessings. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time of sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase a ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you, and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept, and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. Right, that's the blessings. God promises curses to those who fail to keep his commandments. Leviticus 26, 14-21, and we could keep going through 39. The curses are much longer than the blessings. Uh, starting verse 14, But if you will not listen to me and, and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, and if your soul abhors my rules, so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain, and your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. And I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heavens like iron, and your earth like bronze. And your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. Then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. And it goes on. Keep doing that. But I think you got the idea here. Curses for disobeying, uh, blessings for obedience. But we find even more than that, obedience without the proper attitude is not pleasing to God. Fear and love are often used interchangeably to refer to the proper attitude of obedience. In Deuteronomy 5.10, it says, But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments... Where Deuteronomy 5.29 says, Oh, that they had such a mind as this always to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. So we frequently see this. Either they love me and keep my commandments, or they fear me and keep his commandments. But we see these intermixing of love and fear. Both are required through this. Um, and of course, if we love God, we will want to obey him. right? John 14.15 says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Both fear and love must be present to have the proper attitude of obedience. So we see this really, really clearly in Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 13, where God requires all of it. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Right? Isaiah 29, 13 gives us the opposite. And the Lord said, Because his people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Right? So 
right? On one hand, they're commanded to, to love and fear and obey God's commandments. Another hand, in Isaiah, the problem was they, they weren't loving God, they weren't fearing God, and they weren't obeying God either, for that matter. So you need the love and the fear along with the obedience. So we're going through this kind of quickly, but we are required to obey God and keep his commandments, but we must do so with love and the proper fear for it to be good. So how does this fit with the New Testament? Now, right now, we still haven't answered that question. Um, in our natural state, we do not fear God. Uh, Psalm 14.1 says, The fool in his heart says there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. We all are the fool at birth. We all are in rebellion against God. None of us love God. None of us uh, fear God. Uh, matter of fact, Proverbs says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction, right? That's the beginning of knowledge, is the fear. And Paul says in Romans 1 that we are all guilty of suppressing the knowledge of God. This is the supreme sin of mankind, is suppressing the knowledge of God. We don't want to acknowledge God. We don't want to know who he is, even though Paul says that there is the evidence in creation that points to God so that we should know that God exists and that he is powerful and that... Um, we should fear and obey him. We, we suppress that knowledge. Right? This is what it says in, in Romans 1, 18-23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what could be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Right, so this is what we do in the natural man is we suppress the knowledge of God. We don't have the fear of God because we suppress the knowledge of God, and so we don't fear God so we can continue doing our sin, right? Because if we actually properly knew God, understands God, who he is, we should fear him and not sin. That should discourage us. But we don't. We suppress that knowledge because we want to sin. We, want, we don't want to obey God. Fear of any kind requires not only knowledge but belief. We are not afraid of something that we don't believe in. If, we don't believe, if I don't believe the boogeyman exists, I'm not going to fear him, right? Um, you have to believe. To fear God is to recognize God for who he is and to recognize who he or who we are in relation to him. To fear God properly is to know him, to have a reverent awe of him, and while trembling to seek him, as I mentioned before. So, all right, so now fitting in the commandments. Our failure to obey God's commandment teaches us that we are sinners, right? Romans 7, 7 through 11, Paul says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would, have not, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what is what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet right the law leads us to repent and faith to christ by showing us our need of pardon and the judgment that we deserve paul in galatians 3 19-24 says this why then the law it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and was put in place through angels by an intermediary now an intermediary implies more than one but god is one is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. 
So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Right, so the law, the purpose of the law, one of the purposes of the law, is to show us our need of salvation, to recognize, to show us that we are sinners. If we can't keep the law, then we know we have a problem before God. So that's one of the purposes. Right, fearing God and keeping his commandments are, are references then to salvation. Most will list the steps in salvation, right? We could go lots of different steps, but, but in general, calling, regeneration, conversion, justification, sanctification, perseverance, and glorification. I kind of went through that fast. So calling, right? This is when the, the Holy Spirit works, talking about effectual calling, right? There's going to be a, a general call, the gospel being preached, and then there's an effectual call. There's, the Holy Spirit is acts in regeneration that gives us a new heart, it gives us spiritual life. This is the act of, of God that allows us to respond. This is Lazarus in the tomb. He's dead. Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus cannot obey until the Spirit gives him life to obey. And same with us. The gospel call, God says, repent and believe. We cannot do that until the Spirit gives us life so that we respond to God. Then there's conversion. That's faith and repentance, right? We respond through the act of the Holy Spirit regenerating us and getting a, giving us life, we respond with uh, repentance and faith. Then there's justification, which is just God's declaration, a legal declaration that we are now just. Right? There has been a transfer. Before we were sinners deserving God's wrath, but now there's been an exchange. Now we have Christ's righteousness. God looks on us and says, you are good. You have righteousness. It's not our own righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness. Christ got our our, he took the curse for us. He bore the punishment for us. And now God's justice is satisfied. That's justification. Then sanctification is our growth as Christians. That is us obeying God's law, becoming more like Christ, not because it earns us anything, but because we love God. We want to be like God. And then our perseverance is just our throughout our life, staying faithful, not falling away and rejecting God. This is, again, an act of God keeping us. God loses none of his. And then glorification is when we're perfected. Right, so where does this fit in? If we see, conversion and sanctification are the steps that we see most clearly in our life. Right, these are the steps that we kind of act on. If you look on people and say, when were you saved? People are going to talk about, well, they're not going to say, well, the Holy Spirit regenerated me on July 1st, whatever, and then I actually re responded in repentance and faith on July 2nd. Right, we don't, we don't know the Holy Spirit acting. We don't see it. All we know is if we're adults when you're saved, uh, kids it's different, but as an adult, you know, one day this is foolishness. The gospel just makes no sense. It's garbage. But then all of a sudden, this is truth. You just recognize that this is truth. This is, this is it. And you, you respond, right? But So conversion, that repentance and faith is something that we do. It's a response to what God has done, but it's something that we recognize in our life. Same with our sanctification. Our walk is something that we, that we recognize as well. So when we see fear God and keep his commandments, we're really seeing the fear of God is the beginning of conversion. This is the beginning of repentance. You fear God, and then you repent and you have faith, right? This is all. So this is the action that happens after the regeneration of the Holy Spirit in our response. So the fear of God is our first response to the gospel, and then obeying God's commandments. This is our sanctification, right? So when we says fear God and keep his commandments, it is really pointing to the, the beginning of the Christian life and throughout 
to the end of the Christian life. This is the Christian life in a nutshell. It's the beginning and end of the gospel for us as we experience it, not as the technical gospel when we count God's actions and all of that. But this is how we respond to that. So this is just like we saw earlier when they asked Paul or Peter at Pentecost, what shall we do? He said, repent and be baptized. Well, Peter's not giving everything. That's not it, right? It's not just say, I'm sorry, God, and now let me be baptized and I'm saved. He's leaving out faith and repentance and all these other things. He's just using re- repentance and baptism as to refer to everything. And likewise, in Ecclesiastes, in the Old Testament, frequently we see fear God and keep his commandments. That's really referring to the broader, our broader salvation, but it's putting the bookends on our broader salvation, but putting it in Old Testament terms that we can see more clearly in the New Testament in a different light. We see it more as faith, repentance, and all that, but it makes sense in the, in the New Testament, or the Old Testament, as just our fear and um, obedience. I've got ahead of myself, so let's see where I'm at here. <laughs> I've got to catch up <laughs> with my notes. All right, so those who have the fear of the Lord that leads to obedience have saving faith. Commanding us to fear God and keep his commandments is shorthand, as I said, for the proclamation of the gospel. So in conclusion, do you fear God? God is the sovereign Lord and creator of all things. He is a holy God who is described as a consuming fire. The message of the Bible is that all of humanity is in rebellion against God and that a day of judgment is coming. The penalty for our disobedience and rebellion is death in the fires of hell. When we talk about the need of salvation, the person that we need to be saved from is God and his holy and just wrath. But God is not only holy and righteous, he is also merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love. Therefore, God has sent his own son who took on flesh, obeyed God's law on our behalf, then went to the cross and to bear God's wrath in the place of all those who put their trust in him. You know, all of those blessings and cursing, curses in the Old Testament were not just for naught. I mean, we talk about the law leading us to Christ, but Christ took on those curses for us. And Christ received the blessings. And we received those blessings because Christ obeyed the law. So we, Israel, could not get the blessings that are promised in the Old Testament in all these passages because they didn't obey, but Christ did. And we have those blessings through Christ. Christ took on the curses for us. He took all of those things, all of those paragraphs and paragraphs of curses, Christ took upon himself for our sake. So those blessings and curses we see in the Old Testament are not for naught. They're certainly to teach us that we can't obey, but they're also just to show us what Christ has done for us, what a glorious thing he has done for us. So do you obey God? Everyone who claims to be a Christian should show at least some fruit of obedience. If you have no fruit, then your claim of being a Christian is suspect, right? This is the whole book of James. James says, show me your faith by your works. If you have no works, then I don't believe you have faith, right? And so we should obey. We should love God and we should care for God. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Lord, we just praise you. We just praise you, Christ, because you became a curse for us. We're amazed at your love for us, that you went to the cross on our behalf, that you took the wrath of God, you took all of the curses of the law, And you bore them for us. And we just praise you and thank you. And thank you that you have given us all the blessings. What great blessings that we have. The greatest being that, uh, being you. We will one day dwell with you. 
um, the new earth. And we look forward to that day, and we pray that the day would be soon. Until then, we pray that you would help us to fear you as we ought to, with a proper fear, and that we would love you, and that we would obey your commandments, that we'd always seek to be more like you, that we would love your ways, and that uh, we would do what is right. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.